2: Hello, welcome to Catfish Cops. My name is Brandon Poor.
0: My name is Tony Godwin.
2: And we are continuing our discussion with our friends over at the DCAC today. Uh, we are here at the DCAC talking with uh, staff members about the life of a case at DCAC. So, Third bef-
0: week in a row. We have to give week. a little credit for that.
2: They have stuck third, with us.
0: Fourth week? Third week?
2: It's been a number.
0: They're sick of us now. They're like, uh, you've taken up enough time and space.
2: Leave. There's, they've been sick of us but there we go we do have to mention holly hopkins um, who is here but you're not hearing from her today because you're going to hear from her in the future yep. as we talk about the crimes against children conference and the training and education component of the dcac um, she's also helped us facilitate bringing all of these colleagues and profession like experts in this profession together so that we could highlight the work that's being done here at the dcac um, we we constantly talk um, in glowing reviews about the work that's being done here. And so it is a great honor to be able to highlight and and showcase the work that's being done by people who are passionate. They are experts. They really are just, they give of themselves all of the time and their time and energy. Um, On off hours, you know, they're working on days that you're home with your families to protect and restore um, children that have been through the most horrible things you can imagine. So yep. with that, we will continue talking with Mindy Jackson, Director of Support Services. Welcome back, Mindy. Thank you. I, will, I do want to ask, um, because we didn't get to talk about it last week, but let's talk about your background. How did you come to the DCAC? What is your, what's your story?
3: I have been here at DCAC. I just celebrated 10 years at DCAC. And prior to that, I have worked in the domestic violence field. So I was a children's coordinator. I developed and implemented children's programming out of shelters in the Tarrant County area. Where women and children were fleeing uh, domestic violence, and oh, so wow. um, I also have worked in the um, at a homeless shelter. So, prior to coming to DCAC, my career has been working where people live, wow, and okay. providing services to them.
2: And we know that family violence is a huge component in the sexual abuse and physical abuse arena of of child abuse, right? That family violence plays a big part of that. Um, so, what what did you? How did you? decide family advocacy versus, you know, forensic interviewing or some other field in this place?
3: Gosh, good question. I, you know, for me, I, I love to see kind of the families getting better. Not that forensic interviewers don't get to see that part. Um, however, you know, their, their job is sort of one and done oftentimes. Yep. And um, I love being a part of start to finish and getting to see, families enter into the system and leave out of the system or enter into shelter, out of the shelter. So you can really see that change from start to finish um, happening for the family and the caregivers and and everyone else involved.
2: And you have said families do get better at DCAC, right? They don't come in and leave the same way they got here.
3: No, I believe it with all of my heart that families get better here at DCAC. Yeah. I actually tell every single caregiver that I meet with that families get better here. And truthfully, if we don't believe that, then what are we all doing here? Right. Um, these, this is a happy place for kids. This is a happy place for families to come. We have great relationships with our MDT, with our peers. Um, and because of that, we get to provide really great quality services. We are, we're, experts in the field we receive a ton of training mm-hmm. and we're able to move towards these families on some people describe as their worst days and i we have to believe we also have to help caregivers believe that care that families get better here and i think that all comes from painting a picture of hope from day 1 and so for, even from the first time we meet with them to the last time we meet with them we are painting a picture of hope that families do get better it's not easy. It's not happens overnight. It's going to be a lot of work, but we're going to be here to be with you to guide you through that.
0: Yeah. You know, last week we uh, sort of left off, and part of the process we talked about is that if this is a case that moves more towards going to a courtroom situation, and I just kind of wanted to dispel maybe a myth that gets put out there a little bit in the sense that uh, whether you can talk about it and mm-hmm. Make sure that the listeners understand, like, if the child that comes in through this whole process, this one-on-one process, and through the forensic interview, and then through your team and through therapy, and this moves over to court, their recorded interview, like Kim talked about, is that acceptable in court in place of that child from a testimony standpoint?
3: No, it is not. And I
0: I think that's a belief that a lot of people will have going in. And so do you guys prepare, I know we talked a little bit about it last week, but is there some preparation that, that that's simply not the case to ease the burden for that child who may have that thought process?
3: Yeah, for sure. And so we work very, very closely with our clinical department. And so we, again, we provide services, support, education, um, along how they're going to, what what is that courtroom going to look like? Who's right. going to be there? What are they, we kind of label everyone in there. Um, and we are going to provide them some things of um, who all's going to, who are you going to see? Um, because oftentimes when these sorts of things happen, their caregiver, their therapist, the interviewer, none of those people can be in the courtroom. They're detective. Right. They're all waiting outside. And so a family advocate can be in the courtroom. And so we are um, providing that court accompaniment to those kiddos. And we can just say, you'll be sitting here. I'll be sitting here. And you can just keep looking at us. Um, You're a perfect. friendly face, in a, and we're a friendly face. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, thanks what, for
2: Clearing that up. When we talk about the MDT process and the life of the case here, what what does family advocacy bring to that staffing or that multidisciplinary team format? How do you work with law enforcement, and and what do you? What role do you play in that MDT there?
3: I th- you know I think that we have several different roles. I think we. We are a part of working closely with the MDT Are the MDT or our friends. Um, however, we're not a part of the investigation. Um, we make sure that we let families know we're not a part of the investigation. And I'm not going to go run and tell everybody everything that the caregiver says. However, in a staffing situation, I can take into... Um, The findings from our screenings that the family advocates conduct, um, I also can take in there that how is the caregiver doing? Maybe the detective is saying, well, that caregiver didn't believe. And I can say, well, maybe it's just I don't want to believe. And so I can just sort of bring in a different piece Um, to kind of how the the case is moving or that caregiver is maybe flipping out every time the detective talks to them well they view you as inferior you're the system you're all the things that they've been taught and learned to to not trust and so um, I think they lean on us just as much as we lean on them to be able to be that navigator to kind of share some of that news give up case updates give information those sorts of things
2: right Mm -hmm. that's a great that's a great um, point to I mean, you are sometimes for us um uh, being a voice for for us and and the fact that we're not out to get someone and we're not mm-hmm. we're not the enemy, hopefully in this case so. it's a hard
0: sell sometimes, like mm-hmm. you said they they come into this with almost us having no credibility and and you know so they a lot of times it's a uphill battle for us yeah. to to bridge that gap, so 100%. having had to use those services with you guys and some stuff. I, I know how important it is and and was uh, you know, it's just part of that whole process that we all believe in.
3: Well and I think it's so important for as an, from an advocate standpoint that we can sit in a room and with hundred percent of who we are and what we believe, we can look at a caregiver and say, these guys are here to fight for your kid. These guys are here to find out and and women, they are here to find out what happened. They love these kids. They love this work. And so for us to sit there and really be able to say, y'all are our friends and, right. and we are not a part of the system. Um, and how can we um, all move together? And that and to, to provide reassurance to the families that you guys are there to help them.
2: Yeah. And when you say screening, now you talked about screening and working together with therapy. What what does the screening look like for that component of it?
3: So we... Um, Typically, on the second time that we see a family after the forensic interview, we are going to conduct a um, basic trauma screening. And what that's going to tell us is, does the child meet clinical levels of PTSD um, to be referred over to the clinical department? In addition to, um, we're going to get some idea on if the caregiver believes and supports um, is there any um, safety concerns so are there any risk assessments as far as the child and suicidal ideations or thoughts of harm or um, uh, ideas of wanting to harm or hurt themselves or others and in addition to that we'll also talk about if there's any um, intimate partner violence so oftentimes if the perpetrator was the caregiver and or paramour to the non-offending caregiver. There is a lot of times there is domestic violence present in there. And so we want to make sure that caregivers are safe.
2: Now, fancy word paramour, just give a definition.
3: Mom's partner. There you go. Intimate partner. <laughs> I always right. have
2: to make sure we're defining things yes. so that people yeah. understand. But
3: Yes. So caregivers, intimate partner. Um, and then we are going, so we'll do some safety screening, safety assessments, make sure that they have all their basic resources and are these symptoms tied back to the abusive incident? So that's right. where that screening is going to tell us um, the trauma symptoms that maybe the, the child is exhibiting or that the caregiver is seeing in the child. Are they around the incident that brought them to DCAC? Because some children do not need therapy after these sorts of incidents happen. It depends on the caregiver support. It depends on how fast they told, um, how did the family respond and react? What was the relationship? How long had the abuse been going on? So there's many, many factors. If the child views the incident as a traumatic event, and so this screening is going to give us just a very quick snapshot of all of those things so we can make sure that the right kids are moving through the pipeline of services here at DCAC is, and onto our Is
0: department. that screening that you're talking about, has it always kind of been that way since you've been here? Or because I know we've just recently had uh, some conversations about the correlation between domestic violence with sexual abuse um, and how those are sort of coming together under one umbrella. And so I don't remember it being, you know, back in the day when I was carrying cases that, that, that was even, those were like two separate wheelhouses. And so I just wondered how long I'm assuming some research and things like that have, you know, surfaced that kind of show those ties.
3: Yes. Part of um, one of the measures pre COVID, we have condensed our measures a little bit just due to COVID right now, but pre COVID it was very much a part of some of the questionnaires that we were asking, asking the families and, over 65% of our families were identifying that they had been a victim of intimate partner violence within the 30 days, at least oh. on the emotional level. And so, unfortunately, it is the same perpetrator. Um, all of the, the grooming and all the things that we heard Kim talk about, it's the same person. The cycle is the same. Disclosures are the same. It's very much the same um, same process. And right. I'm they're not they're separate
2: saying. that's i think that's something that uh, uh, that's really changed um perspective wise from just just several years ago that they used to be thought of as completely separate there's there's domestic violence and then there's child abuse and they're not they're more interrelated than we knew before
3: yes i think more than we knew and more than than what we were talking about and i think you know to earlier you asked me what we bring to staffing that's also something that we talk about that um once those disclosures are happening you know i typically am pretty quick to ask is there um, past domestic violence right in the home and if we don't know or if we've learned through the screening that's something that we present out to the mdt as well yeah. so we can take all of that into consideration because the cat's out of the bag the mm. secrets are out and so therefore their lethality is super high and yeah. super scary times for the families. Yeah. No,
0: so that's great. the, uh, I mean, this whole topic or uh, surrounding a, a child having to go through this, we, as we've mentioned over the last few weeks, you know, it's, it's heavy. It's like a big thing for them. It's a big thing for the family, but, um, and it's a lot to digest for our listeners and whatnot, but there is some other cool things that go on. Right. So, Maybe tell our listeners, like, what are some of the cool things that also happen at this center that might shed a little bit of different light?
3: Yeah, gosh, thank you for asking about that. You know, part of my whole belief in that families get better is that um, we are able to provide some really great, fun, supportive activities here at DCAC. And the number one thing is, is that we provide a champ camp. Um, for our um, families here at DCAC, and they get to come. So during the spring break time, we offer it for teenage girls or preteen girls. Um, those girls were typically the children that started CHAMP Camp about six years ago, and now some of them have graduated CHAMP Camp, but then they come back and serve as like a junior camp counselor. Oh, very cool. And so it is a week full of building self-esteem Um restoring hope in other adults, making new friendships, and reminding themselves that DCAC is a safe place where kids get better. so cool. And then we offer um, CHAMP Camp two times during the summer, and that's for children ages 6 to 12, um, boys and girls, that are actively participating and or recent graduates of our clinical services. Cool. Um, So cool. And and I have so many fun things. I'm not finished talking.
0: Keep going. Keep going. (laughs) Love it.
2: Yes. Continue.
3: The other thing is. Don't
2: let that voice fool you. She's vicious sometimes, isn't she? We're going to edit that out.
3: Thank you. Because y'all were doing this before. The the other part to what we do is that we have a closed closet here at DCAC. And it is stocked full of all brand new donations and um, that our families have access to. We have birthday bags. We have that has a cake and birthday party supplies. We have a clean start bag, and it's going to provide cleaning supplies um, laundry detergent. And then we have a bag that is made for if children are getting um, removed and or they're needing to flee. Their home where they were staying, and we have the capability of providing them with full toiletries and clothing, and toys, and blankets, and all of those things for about three to five days until we can get them back in the building to ensure that they're wow. safe and comfortable.
0: Yeah. yeah, wow! I guarantee you, the the general public does not know that kind of stuff. So that's uh, that's amazing.
2: Yeah, you offer a lot of resources to families.
3: Yes, yes, yeah. part of a. Huge part of an advocate's role is to ensure that families are connected with mainstream resources and to um, ensure that they are connected with community resources that they have access to. Because the CAC can't be all things to all people, right? We want them to come in right. and we want them to receive wraparound services. We want kids and families to get better. And then we want them to have the ability to access community resources so they can sustain and thrive as families. And
0: this is all at no cost to people. Correct? That's
3: right. Everything we do here is right. free.
0: Hmm. Amazing.
2: Well, now we've got to hear a couple of little interesting things about Mindy. Um, so I'll let Tony highlight um, maybe a little bit of
0: um, mom of two adult daughters. Yes. Nobody would know from the voice. They would just never assume such a thing. You don't look old enough to have two adult daughters. Uh, something in common with the Brandini here, yeah. gardening.
3: Yes. But
2: what kind of gardening, I guess, is the question. Some I don't do flowers.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I do. I love all of it. So my favorite thing to grow is I love to grow basil um, yes. and tomatoes.
2: I was terrible at tomato growing.
3: I like the little small cherry tomatoes. Yes.
2: Yes.
0: Um, you are right in his wheelhouse. Yeah, if we'll, you could just we'll talk sing all, a sonata or something, yes. then... And you then, guys would be harmonized together like that.
3: I don't have a huge garden in my backyard, but my mother-in-law has a very large, beautiful, thriving garden that we all sort of participate in, and it's a
2: community uh, garden, kind of like a community that's garden.
3: Awesome. That's right. And um, but I also love to grow succulents.
2: Oh yeah, that's my wife likes. I mean, it, it's you would think that they would grow really well, but sometimes you have to be particular.
3: Yes, they are tricky.
2: Yeah. And then the weather we got in February killed a bunch of them.
3: (laughs) Yes, I had to replace my entire garden. Yeah. sad.
2: And you love the beach.
3: I do love the beach. I am leaving next week to take my 98-year-old grandmother to the beach. Oh, wow. Wow.
2: That is awesome. What is the best beach that, that you know close by?
3: Well... I'm what's a,
2: your favorite beach close by closest by I
3: mean I love to go to Florida beaches however I'm a Texas girl all the way through and through so I love me a good old Galveston um, weekend that's oh yeah where and headed. that's
2: yeah. <laughs> that's close by so you don't have to you don't have to drive yeah. you know
3: I don't get in the water no matter up. where I go. Oh,
2: so, so it's just the oh, it's beach, just the it's the beach sand, and the sand, it's not the ocean. It's the water,
3: <laughs> the sound, the sun. But no water. Atmosphere, no but, water. No, I'm not getting in, no matter no. where. Like
0: a Jaws fear or something? Absolutely, or? 100%. Well, this is a
2: good place to transition because you may need some therapy about the Jaws phobia. That's right. Uh, so we're going to transition. Um, honestly, one of the things that we said about DCAC is we've talked a lot about MDT and we've talked about forensic interviewing um, but we hadn't talked on our podcast as much about family advocacy and then therapy and so now without further ado we're going to talk to Dr. Katrina Cook. Welcome Dr. Cook. Hello thank you. So tell us about what your role here at DCAC is and and what's your background how did you get into that that place?
1: My role here is the director of clinical services, and um, I'm a psychologist. Okay. Here in Texas, and so how I came to be here at the DCAC, um, I actually taught middle school science for for four years. Oh, bless your heart. Um, I loved it. <laughs> seventh wow. graders. Wow. They're amazing. And um, I was the teacher that they would come to with their problems and the things that were going on at home and there seemed to be a need for that age group and um maybe not the support at home all the time or at least if the support was at home they were unable to access it for whatever reason communication difficulties or um parents working lots of jobs and so i i thought maybe there was another way outside of 45 minutes a day um Talking about frog biology, that I could be helpful.
2: <laughs> yeah, and so you're already acting as a therapist to middle school seventh graders. So. I was
1: answering lots of questions about their bodies, <laughs> and um, so yeah, I uh, I went back to school and I got a PhD in clinical psychology.
2: Wow! So I'm using wow! That here, and that is a jump from middle school to DCAC, or maybe it's not.
1: It's it's not so much. I mean, people are people wherever you go. Yeah, human yeah. behavior and feelings and
0: you must have the patience of a saint. Like I, one just to Put just to simply be process. a teacher in middle school. Like, oh my gosh,
1: I'm looking at my work wife Mindy Jackson, <laughs> and she has opinions that we won't share right now.
0: Probably.
2: <laughs> so you work closely with family advocates.
1: Very, very closely. Okay.
2: So they, she, Mindy talked about screening and deciding kind of the, the process of determining whether someone needs the therapy side of things. Um, and, and what does that look like when we're talking about the case progressing through DCAC? They've been through the uh, forensic interview. They've talked to the family advocates. When do they come to your department?
1: Mindy's team or the family advocates refer to us based on the screening that they complete. Um, So everything that she described, those are the factors that they're taking into consideration in order to um, make a good referral to us. Um, That is only where the relationship begins. Okay. We continue to partner really closely. So she has another team Within her team of family advocates that stay with the families throughout all of their therapeutic services here. Oh. So, her family advocates have a caseload of therapists. And so, every, maybe eight therapists. Every therapist has about 20 kiddos. Wow. So, that family advocate is the family advocate for eight times 20 wow. families. Yeah. And the therapist and family advocate sit together every week, every other week, and they talk through the whole caseload. What's going on with this family? Where are they in services? What barriers do you see? How can we support one another? And they hold each other accountable to have the to be able to provide the best services possible for these mm. families.
2: I think some of some people listening may have preconceived notions about what therapy is and and, you know, what what is therapy in general? But then let's talk about what is therapy in this context. What does a child coming to the DCAC? Why do they need therapy? What's the benefit or the the what's the risk of not getting therapy? What are those those questions looking like?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think we all, if we've watched any television or any movies, then we have this idea of therapy, maybe being that you lay down on a couch and <laughs> right. you know somebody's kind of smoking. Behind you, a cigar, <laughs> and you just kind of talk. Right. Um, and maybe don't even hear anything. That is, that kind of therapy does exist in the world, and that is not what we're doing here okay. at, the, at the DCAC. Um, we are providing evidence based, trauma informed services. And what that means is that you can think of evidence based as being broken into three pieces. So there's this research component, these. Therapeutic um, interventions are tried and true in the literature. They've been studied. But you also have an experienced, trained professional making good clinical decisions. And then the third part is that the, the family comes in with their own unique factors. And they come in with their own culture and their strengths and the different barriers. And so those three things work together so we can collaborate with a family on setting some treatment goals and then moving them through this process with an emphasis on trauma. Um, the, the danger, I guess, um, well, there's actually this myth that all children who've experienced this thing that I think is horrible are going to act or look this certain way. Mm. Yeah. Certainly most children who experience severe physical abuse or sexual abuse or witness a violent crime most children are going to have some kind of reaction to that whether it's in the moment whether it's um an immediate and and ongoing or whether it's something that kicks in four years later most children are going to have some kind of reaction to that Um, and not all children not a hundred percent of children but the vast majority but then the way that children respond isn't that is going to differ the same way that we here at this table right. would differ on a a drive to work, so on a good day I might kind of I might get cut off and kind of look the other way and turn off turn up the radio and Mindy may lean her head out the window and scream some kind of holy blessing to that person <laughs> to just <laughs> encourage them in their day, and one of you guys may stick your hand out the window or you know. We're all going to react differently to that. And children are certainly the same. So we are never surprised to see a child come in with anger or aggression or um, post-traumatic stress or um, anxiety, behavior problems, even sexual behavior problems. Um, We're also not surprised when they come in and they're like, I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. Either because they're really resilient and they have a ton of support or because life has been so hard that this is actually the not the worst thing that's ever happened to them
2: oh yeah yeah and then you don't let them just be fine in that context right (laughs) they they do talk and discuss some things with you yeah absolutely okay
1: yeah we're um services here are voluntary so we're not forcing services on any on anybody and they're and we don't you know as a mental health professional i'm supposed to say everybody could benefit from therapy but not forced therapy right. Yeah. right um so we talk a lot on my team about planting seeds on mindy's team too we're planting seeds if that family says they're fine now and they decline services even if it breaks my heart and i can see a train wreck coming yeah i smile and i thank them for their time and i invite them to come back if they change their mind mm. that way they maybe hopefully view me as somebody who didn't also force something on them the way that this perpetrator forced Uh, something on their family.
2: What do you, what do you, well, first of all, does I can, I know the answer to this. So I'm going to ask this leading question that we talked about, but therapy doesn't for this setting doesn't last four or five years. Correct. It's not that kind of therapy.
1: (laughs) It is not that kind of therapy and it's not because we have limited sessions it's because we get to lean on the science that says if you use this model with this kiddo or this population of kiddos then you can expect that that kiddo is going to do better and that their family is going to be better mm. within about 6 months
2: and what is that what does that model look like can you if you can go into explaining to maybe some of our listeners haven't ever had any experience with therapy or, or therapeutic environments, what does that look like for a child who's been sexually or physically abused in this setting? Are they, you know, are they, they're not laying on the couch, as you said, what is that? What does that entail?
1: Yeah. Um, well it entails a team of providers. So that family advocate and that therapist again are working really closely. Um, caregiver is going to be involved and if that caregiver on day one says i still can't believe it or i won't believe it i know this kid you don't know what they're capable of in either of those situations we continue to work with that caregiver and invite them in and meet needs in other ways so that we're kind of building our credibility with them so that um it's it's relationship right we've got to we've got to develop relationship with families in order to kind of give them a gift of a conceptualization of what's going on with their family so that they can partner with us and we can work together through that.
0: It's got to be a lot of work uh, in and of itself, the whole process as it goes through. So I would imagine if you're faced with those families who might have some initial doubt and then you're giving them more exposure to things. And uh, so when they're able to see something that is, um, from your perspective perspective, progress or moving in the right direction. There's some milestone that's reached that they hit that all of a sudden is like, is there that aha moment sometimes with some of these families?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think about the assessment. We haven't talked about that. So Mindy's team does that screening to make the referral. And then the first session or two with the therapist is a full clinical assessment. So we're assessing the same things that Mindy's team assessed um, but we're at a different point in time now, and we know that yeah. symptoms may develop over time or, you know, remit over time, and that's good right. to know too. So we we gather all of this information from them, and we repackage it as this gift of conceptualization. Like, this yeah. this is how I see, like, you've given me all this information. Did I get it right? Yes. This is what I know from my experience and my training about people that are in the situation that you're in right. and this is how we can help.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. So they, um, we've, we certainly, you know, if you have no experience with sexual abuse yourself, um, and unfortunately so many of our families have, Yeah. but really either way, you come in with your own understanding of how this may affect the family. So especially for a caregiver who has experienced well i dealt with it this way i yeah. didn't need therapy or i got therapy and that's why i'm here for my child most of the time that child is presenting very differently than their caregiver mm. remembers presenting yeah. back in the day
2: how does uh, how does the i guess when you when you're dealing with a family that all families have their own issues right so right. when do you when you see a child come in and maybe that caregiver has problems or issues that they're dealing with how do you respond to a family that may have may does the caregiver get therapy or do they do you refer them out for things when they're dealing with these and how, how does that dynamic play into this environment
1: yeah It is incredible, first of all, the models that we use because they require that a caregiver be involved. Caregivers can actually experience healing over time with just alongside their child. Mm. And that's a beautiful thing when that happens. But at a minimum, every caregiver that shows up is at least distressed about this terrible thing happened to my kid or Mm. I've got the burden of all these systems in my life that I didn't have in my life before so there there are already at least those things going on and we can support in in with Mindy's team with my team um certainly there are we regularly see caregivers who come in who have their own history um and they sit down to do their child's assessment and they say I've never told anybody this but this oh, wow. happened to me yeah. Yeah. and so we're talking about a generation later a wow. caregiver is saying for the first time ever, I, I'm going to need help with this because I didn't, oh, I haven't yeah. dealt with it. I didn't do it. Um, Pre-COVID, we were able to, we had more bandwidth to be able to serve some of those caregivers in-house. Um, the past year, we haven't had the bandwidth, unfortunately. Right. And we have some incredible providers in the community that we can make really warm handoffs to.
2: Oh, great. That's nice. What did when you're talking about, we've, I think we've mentioned a lot be- before about the dangers of a child experiencing these incidents and not receiving therapy. Um, so I have seen or heard from parents who are like, nope, everything's fine. We don't want to do it. It's too much trouble. Why is therapy absolutely beneficial in this environment?
1: At a minimum, if they can all show up for one session and say, yeah, this happened, then the there has been a bridge created for a child and a caregiver to communicate about that at some point in the future. At a minimum, we yeah. can hold that space for families here. Hmm. Ideally, if the child needs treatment, then we can see them through a whole episode of treatment, which will, again, keep that attachment and that connection that communication with their caregiver up front um exposure is so much of it so we used to say things like here at the DCAC we used to say things like now that you've talked to the forensic interviewer you'll never have to tell your story again oh which we know isn't true yeah <laughs> um we actually are going to talk about that incident in therapy because it takes the edge off so yeah. It doesn't and it doesn't catch them off guard in the future. So I am somebody who is fearful of roller coasters. Okay. And I I don't want to ride the roller coaster. My heart races just to be at the amusement park, even if I know that nobody's going to force me to get on one. But let's say that it's time to get on the roller coaster. I'm going to have to. And so I wait in line, I'm anxious, 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 I get there, I'm crying, I don't want to get on the roller coaster, and then somebody lets me out, like I can just scramble across the the little part <laughs> and go out the other side. What happens next time I see a roller coaster? My fear response is going to be amped up, because I'm not going to think to myself, well, I don't have to ride a roller coaster, right? Which isn't the case right. with a traumatic response we don't get to choose when we have a traumatic response Mm. what i am going to remember is that because i didn't have to do that thing that reinforces this whole roller coasters are really super dangerous remember how scared i was Mm. and and i chose not to do it and here i am i'm alive because of that choice that whole thing can be applied to kiddos so a kiddo who um, was hurt at school may not want to go back to school anymore Yeah, and that's an option. But then, what does that look like in five years? Are they still not in school? Are they homeschooled forever? Do they go to college? Do they do online school for the rest of their life? Right. Um, Do they need to work from home? Then, Uh, is it scary to go to the Walmart because I've been at home this whole time? So brings on a whole
0: host of problems. It really potentially
1: it really does. Whenever we, it's and it's all about avoidance. So when we are like, I'm fine to avoid this. I don't need to think about it or feel about it. Mm. Then we can, it just perpetuates and can snowball. Mm. So therapy really here is going to be a lot about teaching families how to communicate, teaching families how to cope um, and lean in. Yeah, Leaning in.
2: Not avoiding. Not avoiding. Yeah. Well, we've heard from, like Sonia Ryan talked so much about, the trauma and what she experienced with trauma around that incident. Um, Can you speak to how trauma plays into everyday lives and how we may be able to help that child through that trauma? I mean, I, I would assume that that's gotta be a big component in therapy is helping. I mean, I know adults don't know how to cope with trauma sometimes. So a child dealing with that traumatic incident must be something that you must deal with?
1: Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of different levels. So when we think about sexual abuse, for example, or f- severe physical abuse, there are different dynamics that go into that having happened to that child. So for in sexual abuse, you have a perpetrator who's intentionally manipulating a family. They're intentionally manipulating a child. They're Um, their whole goal is to gain access and control. So they are wanting to, um, they want to minimize the child's resistance to the abuse. They want to minimize the risk that the child will tell. They want to minimize the risk that if the child does tell that they'll be believed. And so that all works and it stays with kids even after the abuse stops. Mm. So they continue to buy into and it's adaptive, right? You can't just turn this off. They've been trained by an adult yeah. to believe that they were a cooperate a cooperator in the abuse. Yeah. They're yeah. guilty. They're they're guilty of this just like, you know, they're collaborators on yeah. this. And so even once the abuse stops, you take that child away and they're safe but they still have this well it was my fault i should have told yeah. earlier i should have all of these things now apply that self-appraisal to anything in life yeah right and the consequences again they just can snowball
0: yeah downward spiral and lead to all kinds of things after the if not taken appropriate you know measures
2: And we've mentioned that ACEs study before. I mean, we see long-term effects of this, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, minimally we would think some impairment. So I've got these thoughts about myself that I don't feel good about myself, or I've got some depressive symptoms. Um, school is getting a little bit harder, but then from there it can, you know, develop. And so, if things aren't going well at school, do I start to um, do I start to try to adapt in ways that'll make school easier? So, do I self medicate? Do I get something from that kid yeah. in my class who says it'll really help to stay focused or really help to take the edge off? So we we see kids start to adopt these health behaviors yeah. that are not great. Yeah. Um, food, sleep can be impacted. All of that, and then. And then you continue to climb up through, and before you know it, all of all of those health risk behaviors, all of the stress of being in danger, and the constant every reminder puts your body back in that stress place, yeah. which is just it's hard wear and tear on your body. Yeah. Um. And so then again, we we know that we can have negative me- medical impacts from that disease, heart disease, liver disease, lung cancer you know all of these things can be born out of that and when you have an experience of six or greater of these aces we've seen 20 years off their lifespan
0: Jeez!
2: so we're looking at early death long-term debilitating illness drug alcohol abuse self-medication all of that because it was unresolved at this time which could be remedied, right? Yes. And that's something that I know we have, Tony and I have preached a lot to when we teach is, you know, don't let this become something that doesn't resolve now that will, you know, pop up later, right? Right,
1: Get in front of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. What do you have, what do you say when that parent says, my kid is fine? You know, how do you convince? I think you said earlier planting seeds, but Mm -hmm. how do you go about... Maybe talking to the caregiver at that time about that, like that ACE, you know, those adverse childhood experiences. That's ACEs. I, mm-hmm. I didn't define it earlier, yes. but when I said it, but how do you talk with that parent about like this could be something that pops up and leads to early death? You know, how do you, how does that conversation work?
1: Yeah. I've never said it that way. Maybe I should give it a try. I'll let no, you know how it goes. No, that's the cop in me. <laughs> no tact. Do this Shock or you'll all. die. Yeah. Um, no, I think sometimes it's really easy because you've got a kid sitting here that's saying, I'm having a hard time. And so you uh. can just tell the caregiver with the child there, they're having a hard time. And they say, yeah, I'm having a hard time. Yeah, And then they get in. Other times kiddos learn to be avoidant from caregivers. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So you Model have, the behavior. Yeah, exactly. And so you may have them both sitting here saying we're fine. We're fine. Um, and so depending, depending on how obvious their unfine is, yeah. um, sometimes I'll say, you know what? I've been looking for a, a kid to work with for only a couple of sessions. Cause you know, I'm real busy. And so I just don't have a ton of time to commit to a family, but if you'd be willing to come in just 3 or 4 times then you know i can get my supervisor off my back and y'all you know mom yeah. you can come in and yeah. we can take care of this um i do have time and i do want to work with families obviously but when we give caregivers and kiddos permission to back out yeah yeah then they don't necessarily back out yeah and they say
2: and maybe when they don't think it's A 15-year commitment. Yeah, exactly. Three times, four times sounds much better than seven months of it or 10 months or two years.
1: Well,
0: I imagine you have to sell it almost to some of them, you know, and some of the, the, like you said, you have these caregivers that have got untold issues of their own that they've never addressed or dealt with. And I was wondering if, like, when you said, if you get them in for one meeting and maybe they opt at that point, is there any evidence to say that that one meeting has helped maybe that child later down the road or, you know, like you said, sometimes that uh, their um, situations manifest, you know, at different times and sorry, uh, that kind of stuff. But like, has there ever been anybody that's come back and say, wow, you know, I remember I learned this back then or something like, I wonder like the generational like you talked about the generational thing before, like, have we seen it where the generation that's, you know, suffering now that's been offered this and how it changes the dynamic when they become adults and parents and whatnot, if it repeats itself?
1: Yeah, we do. We Most frequently we have caregivers come in and say, this is the first time I'm saying that this happened. I never yeah. got help. Um, but we also have caregivers who come in and say, "I know how important this is." Kiddo saying, "I'm fine, I'm fine," yeah. and caregivers saying, "I think that you're fine too." And but <laughs> let's see, yeah. yeah, let's just see about this. Let's let's give them a shot. Let's see what we can do with what they give us.
2: Well, and one thing you pointed out to us uh, that I think is really important to say that that the the part about sexual health discussions being important with sexual abuse survivors. Right. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. You know, part of it is kind of enhancing safety moving forward. And we, we want you to have good information about taking care of your body and being safe and, and all of that. But the way that I view this and the way that I talk about it with caregivers, because frequently caregivers would rather that we not talk with the four to 14 year old about sexual health. Um, I'll, I do put it out pretty straight with them. And I say, so basically what's happened is that this other person without your permission, without asking you about your values, without, um, an audience, obviously this is happening in secret. They've pulled your child aside for a period of time and they have provided the sex education for your kiddo. Let that sit for a second. Yeah. yeah. So we're 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 not just talking about we're not using the right words. Yeah. Right. We're not using doctors' words for body parts. We're talking about power and control. We're talking about consent. We're talking about um, exploitation. Yeah. Where if we don't have these conversations to at least introduce that. It's not that that was just bad what that person did, yeah. but we learn lessons out of all of those experiences, yeah. and yeah. that can impact how that child goes about looking for a partner later right. in life. Or that can't even, be
2: the normal. It cannot like be that. Normal. Can't be your education, right? It needs to be re-educated. Exactly. That's now, a great point.
0: Yeah, I mean, what do they? They say the best predictor of future behavior is the past behavior, and so if that's their only resource. Like if you can't unring that bell, you have to, you, they have to be able to know that there's a way to get that kid's mind. Right. I mean, that's just, man, that's unbelievable.
2: What, uh, now I know I've seen it happen where, you know, a child's not ready to talk about something in the forensic interview. Right. And we have been referred to therapy and then an outcry may come from that. Can you discuss kind of that process and, and what happens then?
1: Yeah. Um, that does happen. I mean, at a minimum, children are they've disclosed certain details in their forensic interview, and now after a month of therapy or you know building relationship with their therapist, they feel comfortable. This is a safe person in my life, and they'll provide more details about that same incident, or they'll say, "Oh, and you know what? This other person did this other thing to me." Oh, wow. Um, so, if it's about the same incident, that's actually good we want for that to happen we can explain to a jury when that happens that yeah you just you just listened to this eight-year-old talk about their sexual abuse and it didn't sound like what that forensic interviewer described there were all these other details and doesn't that mean they're lying or they're making nope it means that therapy worked and that's amazing that they can sit there and tell their story without falling apart um But when there are additional disclosures, therapeutically, that's going to look the same for that child and that family. Behind the scenes, um, family advocate and therapist are getting together. They're getting with the detective. They're getting with the CPS worker. I think something that's interesting about providing mental health services in a CAC is that there is statute that protects communication that I wouldn't normally be able to communicate. Yeah. So services, um, mental health services are, are protected privacy. That's yeah. right. Yeah. We've got HIPAA. We're not supposed to talk about what happens in the therapeutic space. And when you're serving at a CAC and something comes up, then we, we do ask families permission. You know, sure. we're getting consent at the beginning of treatment, but part of that consent is saying I work on an MGT and I work closely with these people. And, and like Mindy said, I'm not going to go, and tell everything that just happened in the therapy session or what you, you know, what exactly we talked about. And if something comes up, that is that causes me to worry about your safety, or if there's something that comes up that is unsafe for other kids, then we do tell those things. Yeah. So the family knows it's open.
2: Right. What would you want the general public to know um, from a therapist? You know, what would you want them to know around this topic? What would you think would be most helpful for a parent um, to know, you know, regarding this, this area around children?
1: Um, I think that one, um, the, the more open we can be with our children and the more likely that relationship provides a space for children to talk. Hmm. And so despite my PhD in clinical psychology and despite my years at the DCAC, I am as vulnerable to being groomed by a perpetrator as anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm in danger of that too. And so there's no level of, um, Super supervision that I can provide. That's going to keep my family safe a hundred percent of the time. And I think when we lose sight of that and when we think it's not possible to happen
2: is when you're most vulnerable yeah.
1: people pick the, you know, people that want to hurt children are looking for those loopholes. Yeah. They're yeah. looking for those ends. So I think that's one. The other is that um, I love my work and I hear really terrible stories all the time. And I don't go home and get caught up on the story and like I'm not kept up at night by all of the terrible stories that I hear um, because we have the MDT and we have have our community that supports us and we have this good science that we can lean on. And so I see a family in crisis and I get excited about the recovery that they'll experience.
2: Ooh, which brings me to one thing that I thought about earlier, which is the thing that we share with people about graduation. From mm. there. It's like I've told people it is the most heartwarming, positive, like it brings all detectives to tears moment to me in this process. What is that? What is that thing? Graduation.
1: It is a celebration of the work that a family has done in the team, really it's a celebration for all of us to come together and say, this family has, has leaned in and they've committed and they've worked week after week after week. And, and it's not like a checkbox, right? Like we've continued with those reassessments and symptoms are coming down and they're using their skills and they're no longer scared to see that red pickup truck at their school or, you know, um, so we all get to come together and just and celebrate with families. Yeah.
2: And we, I mean, I have, I've watched yeah. grown men and women, law enforcement break down in tears because you're watching a child who came into this, you know, not broken, but, but certainly hurting and then walking out with kind of a confidence and just like most of the time the kids, you know, like, oh, okay, let's get, <laughs> but, but it is something to watch. And but it so,
0: validates things too, because, you know, guys like us working these cases on the front end, and we see that that hurt. We see that offense. And so all those things that we're trying to explain to families and the kids as this process goes through, it just validates things on the end. Yeah. And so, like, I and know he's talked about it. I've talked about it where if if, if officers, front-level guys that are out there taking the reports, if they could see that, witness that, experience that, on the front end, like if that's a video of there's a family that would cut a release that said, Hey, you could show this to, for our training purposes. Like to me, as we hound the new guys, the new generation that's coming in and, and explaining to them, these are our things. This is why this is. how. And then here's the final result. Like, I think it would do so much good in the long run. Families get better.
2: at at this process Mm -hmm. and that, that it's here for a reason. So, uh, now I do want to end kind of wrap things up with a couple interesting points about you, Dr. Cook, and you have shared a couple interesting uh, things about yourself. So Tony's going to,
0: let's see. So number one is you said you've become a COVID farmer with your neighbor. You're farming COVID.
1: Well, yeah, that is how it comes (laughs) out, isn't it? Um,
0: please explain.
1: Yeah. My neighbor and I have not been passing COVID back back and and forth forth to one another, um, (laughs) cultivating new forms. No, no. But for a couple of years, he and I had been talking about, we, I have this great raised bed. It's in the sun all the time. He has just a bunch of shade. And so he has envied my space for a couple (laughs) of years. And I have told him, yeah, some year we'll, we'll do this together. And then we didn't until March, 2020. You you have all this time, huh? We were both at home and (laughs) there's this big gardening bed in the back. And
2: So what successfully did you grow during COVID? Because this may have been a great year. You could really tend to a garden during this year. I mean,
1: our basil was six feet tall. (laughs) Wow. Now my
2: problem with basil is I just never had enough things to use it in. Like, I don't know. Maybe take I take
1: w- your cherry tomatoes and there, your basil there it is. and a little bit of olive oil, some garlic, and then you just make pesto out of it. And then you freeze it and it's there for you all winter.
2: Yeah, I, I was doing this all wrong then because I are. just, I did not think of enough ways to use basil.
0: I'm so out of my element That's right really now. The <laughs> only thing we do with it is
1: pesto.
2: Is pesto. Yeah. Well, and, and <laughs> this was a good time to learn. Yeah. COVID farming. That's right.
0: Um and so another one that you mentioned is that sometimes during staffings you jump on a trampoline. That was great. When I read that I thought this is the <laughs> best thing I've ever heard. So in these I've, COVID times when they've been virtual like yeah. I'm too, I'm hoping or I'm assuming you cut the video off. I do. Cuz
2: No, I, be think, I think I think next staffing you just uh, jump and leave that video. I don't that video make anybody
1: on. sick. It's pretty, there's <laughs> kind a lot of Blair of,
0: witch
2: yeah, going on. Little, okay. That, that <laughs> I see
1: motion. Nice. Yeah. I turn off my mic and just listen, you know, listen to terrible stories and jump
2: and jump. And it's like therapeutic.
1: It, I mean, it's fun at least
2: <laughs> relaxing
1: on yeah. some level.
2: And you've gotten all of our stupid jokes and put up with us for, for this long, because lastly, you are familiar with law enforcement.
1: I, yeah, I'm from a law enforcement family. Awesome. Mom and dad and stepmom. That's uh, how you've put up with us for this long
2: today. Yep. Th- thank you for that. Yep. And thank them for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank y'all.
2: That brings us to a close today with our friends over at DCAC. Uh, we hope you have learned and enjoyed as much as we have. Um, if you haven't learned, you weren't listening, go back and listen again because, <laughs> These are amazing amazing people in this field Um, that's the truth and we will uh hopefully soon actually we know soon be talking to more members of the dcac the director of national training and the crimes against children conference coordination and maybe even the crimes against children conference like founder or founding members um and we will uh can't wait (laughs) yeah we'll talk about that whole process as well So until then, we will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.